Um, okay, so this morning, I'm going to be in Matthew chapter 2. We have been in a series, we've been looking at the Gospel of John, made it all the way through uh, chapter 7, but this morning, um, we are going to take a break from that, there, actually this month of December, and we are going to look at the um, narratives in the Gospels around Jesus' birth, and the title of our Advent series, so that's, um, that's what this season is. It's Advent. Advent means the coming, um, the arrival. And so we want to remember the arrival of Jesus, God made flesh and dwelling among us. And not only remember his first arrival, we want to look forward to and, and long for his second coming, his second arrival. And so that's the spirit of Advent season. And to do that, we want to look at, um, I want to look at four different gifts over the next several weeks. So this morning, we're going to look at um, the gift to the Magi. And the next week, we'll look at the gift to the shepherds, and then the gift to Mary, and then we'll consider, at the end, we'll wrap that up as a, just how all this points to it, this being a gift for us. So hopefully, it won't take me four weeks to get to how this is a gift for us, but um, if it does, you'll know it's coming, all right? So, whoo. Tough crowd. All right. So, it's Christmas for Christ. Merry Christmas. We can say that to each other. All right. Woo, tis the season. All right. So, do this. Go to Matthew 2. We'll just get into the text, and, and we'll go from there. Um, uh, well, real, real quick. So, so Matthew, let, let me tell you how, how the, let me give you the story of Matthew 2 that you already know. So, it starts out, the, the wise men come. You know, we three kings of Orient are, um, which they're not kings. But anyways, not to spoil Christmas for you, all right? Uh, we three kings of Orient are. So, so, they, so the, the Magi are going to show up. Gee, this isn't a birth scene. So, so this isn't the, the, the manger. Next week's the manger, okay? That, that's the shepherds. Jesus has already been born. They've moved out of the inn. They're in a house now. Um, the Magi come. They go to Jerusalem. That's where kings are. They ask the king, you know, um, where's the king that was born? And, and then he, you know, they have that conversation. Um, then he sends them off, tells them to come back, because then he's going to murder all the children under two years old in Bethlehem. They don't come back, but he does it anyway, and then Herod dies. So that's, the, that's how it is, okay? So um, th that's chapter 2. And what I want to look at here in the middle of it, or, or the beginning of it, is why does Matthew include this story about the Magi? He, he, he will skip really entirely over the whole birth scene. Luke has the birth scene. Luke has the beautiful thing we read on Christmas morning. And, and Matthew, he skips that. He just says, so Jesus was born in Bethlehem. But let's get to the Magi, which is weird because Magi, these are magicians. These are, these, they're the opposite of holy people, okay? You, you, you wouldn't think, I mean, Israel is forbidden forbidden to play around with astrology, not astronomy, astrology. So you can watch Star Trek, you just can't do tarot cards, all right? Um, so astrology, they're forbidden for that. They're forbidden to practice these, these uh, practices in the East, and, and they're idol worshipers. And I mean, so on the scene, the very first, so Jesus comes into the world, Emmanuel, God with us. And the very first people that, that will encounter Jesus in Matthew's gospel 
are these pagan idolaters from the east who worship the stars, who Paul will write about in Romans chapter 1. Listen, they, they, um, they, they forsook their creator and began to worship creation. That's who these people are. And so one is it, why? Why does Matthew begin with this scene? That's a, that's a question I want to try to ask this morning. He, he's not a, Matthew's not a historian, although he gives us accurate history. He's not a biographer, although he gives us an accurate biography, just not a complete one. He's, he's an evangelist. He's a theologian. And he's trying to tell us about Jesus, this one who came, who is God with us. As John says, the, the word that was made flesh, he wants us to know about him because he wants us to believe in him. And so why include these guys? And oh yeah, by the way, he's writing to the Jews who they would have read this first bit and thought, well, I don't understand this. And so I want to press in to that this morning. Here's what we're going to see. We're going to see that God's going to lead these wise men from where they are, and he's going to lead them miraculously to his word. And from his word, then he leads them to his son. Okay? And, and God's plan has not changed at all. Meets us where we are, leads us to his word, leads us to his son. So if you would, I'm going to begin reading in verse 1 of chapter 2, I'm going to read to verse 12, and then we'll talk about it. So ver- chapter, one, uh, chapter 2, verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we've come to worship him. But when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, well, in Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophet, the, the prophet Micah, in Micah 5, chapter, uh, verse 2. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod heard the, uh, summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, for when you found him, bring me word, that I too may come and worship him. Well, after listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star... They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. It's the word of the Lord. I pray that he bless our time in it this morning. Well, the, the first verse in, in chapter 2 introduces the scenes, uh, the characters in the scene. You've got, uh, you've got Jesus, you've got Herod, and you have the Magi. And so Jesus, as I said, has just been introduced by Matthew as Emmanuel, uh, God with us. 
And so now he's going to give us a picture of what it's like when God's with us. When, when this divine invasion comes, when God breaks into humanity physically, you find, you find it in Matthew's gospel and Mark's and Luke's and John's, that there's no neutral response to Jesus. His presence will either threaten everything about you or his presence will bring you to your knees in worship or adoration. I mean, but that's how you know. I mean, if you've truly seen Jesus, if he's, if he's truly shown up, I mean, you, you either, you, you find yourself in this, in this rebellion because he threatens everything about who you are or who you're trying to be, or you're, you're overwhelmed with him and you find yourself bowing and worshiping before him. That's Jesus. The second character in this scene is Herod. He reveals to us, I think, what human nature, sort of our natural man, our natural response when we're confronted with the revelation of God, and that is that we're rebellious. We are threatened. We want to push it away. We want to get rid of it. And he's such an interesting character. He was born in the 70s of uh, B.C., Okay, So he's not a young man necessarily at this time. His family was Idumean, which means they were from the place of Edom. So Herod, think about this. He is a descendant of Abraham and Isaac, just not of Jacob. He's a descendant of Esau, those that were in Edom. His father was a man named Antipur. That's why you'll find him in literature as Herod uh, the Antipur, or later he'll be known, as he is in Matthew's gospel, as Herod the Great. And they were loyal to Rome. He and his dad were. And his dad was an advisor for the Jewish high priest of the time. And they, so they were loyal to Rome, and they were, they were working their way into the Jewish people. And, and um, Herod uh, was a rising star. At 25 years old, he was made a governor in the Galilean area. And he was one of the men influential in Israel at the time of bridging the gap between sort of the old world Hebrews and the new world of Rome and the Hellenism that came with it. His father was um, executed. He was assassinated by a, a group, uh, a, another country that was found themselves at war with Rome. These folks come in. They occupy Israel for a short period of time. Herod flees, goes to Rome. The emperor at the time says, oh, hey, Herod, you, you're really great. I want you to go back and I want you to be king of Judea. That's where he gets the, the name king of the Jews. So he goes back, he kicks those people out, and he begins to rule for 33 years as the king of the Jews. Up until Matthew chapter 2, verse 19, when he dies. Well, Herod the Great, he was called that because he was a master builder. So he was um, a terrible person. Um, he was tyrannical. He was, he was crazy. But the guy knew how to build stuff, okay? And that's why people tolerated him, even liked him. And he built four kind of major things. If you ever go to Israel with me, you can go see these four major things. He, um, 
the, the, so, so he rebuilt the temple, and then he, he built this deal called the Herodium, which is he built a mountain, essentially, outside of Jerusalem, and he made it taller than the temple mount so he could put a house on it and say he lived above the temple. But he built a mountain, all right? And then he built uh, the, the, another thing. But the thing that blows me away every time I see it is that we'd go to, we'd, I'd take you there, we'll go to Caesarea by the sea. And it's this beachfront property that Herod built. And it is, it is marvelous. It's a, it's a palace. Uh, you can see the remnants of the palace. It is an amphitheater. It is a hippodrome. It is, it, he, has, he has covered the beach there on the Mediterranean with some of the most unbelievable architecture at the time. But the thing that blows me away is you can stand there in what would have been this giant living room, okay? So the wall's not there, the big screen TV's no longer there, all that stuff. But where he would have sat in his great big throne, and he would have looked out over the Mediterranean. Beautiful place. And, and so I'll spoil this for you. But you look out, and you see there are these um, retaining walls that jut out into the Mediterranean. And they make a box out in the Mediterranean, and water sits in the middle of it. Well, Back when Herod used to occupy that, because the Mediterranean is salt water, Herod didn't like to bathe in salt water. He liked to bathe in fresh water. And so what he did was he made a fresh water pool inside the Mediterranean Sea. You say, well, that doesn't sound like a big deal, except for when you think about the only source of fresh water was all the way on the other side of Israel over at the Sea of Galilee. So he built an aqueduct from where the Jordan hits the Sea of Galilee all the way across Israel so that he could fill his freshwater pool. I mean, we laugh, but that's Herod. He was, an, he was Herod the Great because of this. Now, he had some other problems, though. He had 15 wives, or 10 wives, 15 sons, um, ended up killing three of his sons. Uh, so much so that um, Caesar Augustus said, it's better to be one of Herod's pigs than one of his sons, all right? Life's easier for you that way. He had one favorite wife named Miriam. Um, In fact, he loved her so much that he told his men that, listen, when I go out and I travel abroad, if anything happens to me over there, the first thing you need to do is to kill her because I don't want anybody else to touch her. I love her so much. It's like, oh, yeah, I think Eminem sang a song about that or something, so... Um, so, so that's what he was. he was. He was maniacal. He was crazy. But here's the deal. He built these fortresses and he had all these layers of protection and all these contingencies because he was a man who was absolutely paranoid of losing what he had and, and losing everything he thought he had become. He lived in fear and paranoia. And if you got too close to him, he would eliminate you. I think he is a picture of this sort of raw human nature that we all have. We don't have the luxury that Herod has. I mean, we, we can't, you know, like road rage, just, you know, decide, well, take down those three license plates. I'm going to get rid of those people. They won't be on the road anymore. We don't have that kingship luxury. But make no mistake, everything Herod is on the outside is a picture of what every one of us is on the inside. Well, that's Herod. And then you have the Magi. And 
they'll reveal, I think, what it looks like when a sinner meets grace. So Herod's response is going to be rebellion. It's going to be to murder, to murder every child under two years old just to make sure we don't miss anybody. He was consumed with it. The Magi, who's so interesting, these are pagan worshipers. They're idolaters. They worship the stars. and they, Yet they know something significant has happened, and yet we're going to see what happens when grace meets with sinners. So a few things about them. Um, they're probably not kings. Uh, that was, first appears about the 6th century after all this. Uh, maybe there was three. Maybe there was more. We get three because of the three gifts. Um, they were from, probably from Babylon or Persia from the east. Um, their names, traditionally their names are, although we have no idea what their names are. There was Melchior, um, Casper. That was the friendly one. Um, <laughs> it's my one today, all right? So uh, Balthazar, uh, but probably not. I don't know if that was their names or not, but they, they were searching, all right? They, but more of that in a minute. But, but life as wise men, though, let's say it this way. Life as wise men, one way or the other, it wasn't, it wasn't enough that they needed more than wisdom. They knew, listen, their wisdom was valuable. It was sought out. But yet they knew there, there was something greater than their wisdom. And so they go searching for it. Yeah, the truth is, you're either looking for your master, you know, your Lord, your, your Savior, or you're expending all of your energy trying to be your own master. And in essence, your own Lord, your, your own Savior. P.T. Forsyth, this old theologian, pastor of a couple of generations, said, the world finds its consummation not in finding itself, but in finding its master. Not in coming to its true self, but in meeting its true Lord and Savior. Not in overcoming, but in being overcome. You see, there are people coming to Christ with worship in their hearts there are people coming to Christ with murder and rebellion in their hearts. There is a response of faith. There is a response of rebellion. And what's interestingly enough is the response of rebellion comes from the people who on the outside, who on the outside appear to be insiders. So the Magi show up. Where, where's this king? The, the one who was born king of the Jews. We saw a star. We came to worship him. And you can just imagine the threat that seizes Herod. It's the day he's dreaded. I mean, it's on him. He's the, he's the epitome of the imposter syndrome, fearing everyone's going to find out that he's not, not who he wishes they thought he was. See, it's interesting. In that time, in the first century, there was this rumor, this fever going around. People felt that there was going to be a king born in Judea, you know, at this land of the Mediterranean, and that he was going to be a king of the world. Historians in the first century were writing about this rumor. And here in this moment, the, what Herod had dreaded, he's hearing announced. 
Well, the only sentence the Magi speak in the whole scene is in verse 2. It says, where is he who's born king of the Jews? We saw the star. Um, they're outsiders. So not just outsiders by race. I mean, they're Gentiles. They're not Jews. They're outsiders in that respect. They're also outsiders in their theology. They probably don't have a Bible. If they know anything of Scripture, it's probably some remnant left over from Daniel's time that's completely out of context from anything else. It doesn't make much sense apart from it. They're, they're into astrology. They're into astronomy. They're, they're outsiders in every way. And yet they're going to get invited to the party. They're going to be the one who, you know, they're they literally following the lights. And yet God in his great kindness is going to lead them to his son. See, I think that's why they're in the Christmas story. I think there's this picture of, of God saying, look, that outsiders, insiders, I don't care how the world defines that. I've come for everybody. In fact, in Hosea chapter 2, he says, I will show love to those who were called unloved. And to those who were called not my people, I'll say, you're my people. And they'll say back to me, you're my God. That's who he came for. And that while they, they set out in all of their earthly wisdom, they will end being spiritually wise. Well, so the star, there's a lot of things about the star, and I, I'll just say this. Some people, um, so stars were thought of in the time that they would accompany the birth of a king or they would accompany the death of a king. There was this thing that happened in 44 B.C. when Julius Caesar died, and there was a supernova, and everybody freaked out, and there was this weird thing that just happened. And then in 11 B.C., there was Halley's Comet that passed by. And then in 7 B.C., there was an alignment of Saturn and, and Jupiter. And so people have spent a lot of energy trying to fiddle out, figure out the riddle of the star in this account. And I just, let me, let me just tell you my two cents about it. You ready? I think the star's a mystery. I think it's a miracle. I think it's something to be wondered at. It is not a riddle to be solved. It, I think it was supernatural. I think it was an event from God, the God who created the universe and command the stars, the one whose greatness and majesty is declared by all of creation. So I don't know how to get those guys' attention. But the star wasn't sufficient to lead them all the way to Jesus. But it did lead them to God's word, which led them to Jesus. The coming of Jesus always divides people. Jesus will not have uttered a word in this passage. And yet you'll see two camps forming. Those who worship in praise and adoration and those who despise him and want to rid of him. All right, so Herod hears this. He's troubled. Listen, when a guy like Herod's troubled, everybody feels the trouble. And so he gets the chief priests and the scribes, the religious people, the pastors, the theologians, the seminary professors, and he brings them in and says, hey, wait a minute, what, what's this thing about the Christ? Where, where is he going to be? Um, what's, the, what's the scripture say about the Christ? And they don't, listen, they don't miss a beat. They don't have to go search it. They don't have to go 
um, uh, you know, figure this out. They don't have to go ponder it or have a debate over it. It was part of their Awana memory verses, okay? Micah 5, 2. Oh, yeah, we know all about this. He's going to be born in Bethlehem. That's where he's going to be born. See, the wise men didn't know this. They have to hear this from Scripture. It is Scripture. In fact, it's it's the gospel of Micah 5. It's going to lead them to Jesus. But what is so fascinating about it is the gospel will come through these religious people who with all of their knowledge have absolutely no faith. Do you know how far Jerusalem is from Bethlehem? Five miles. You could walk it in an hour. And they don't even they don't even bother to take an hour to walk down the road and to see if this prophecy they knew by heart had come true. They don't even care. I mean, this announcement, this journey, the journey of a lifetime for these magi who are, who are searching out a king because a, a star has appeared and with all their zeal and all their excitement and all of their energy they're searching and they hear that Scripture confirms what it is that they had, they had they'd guessed and yet it's met with indifference and apathy and rebellion and that's the religious people. I'm sure they left there scratching their heads confused at the responses. They got the Messiah had been born and nobody seemed to care. It's one of the most glaring contrasts in the whole passage. Well, Herod has a secret meeting. He wants to have this secret meeting and he wants to sell them on the idea that, hey, listen, I commission you, go and find him. And then hurry back here because I can't wait to go worship him. But he's lying to them. He believes he's deceived him. He knows he believes he's deceived him because he doesn't even send anyone with them. He's just sure they're going to come back. And yet what Herod could not have foreseen was God's intervention. God will come to them at the end and warn them in a dream. Don't go back to that guy. You'll go back a different way. Well, pick up in verse 9, and I want to look at this. It says, And after listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that had seen, uh, they'd seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. I mean, there's this sense. You know what they see about this star or this supernova or this fire by night that they're following, this, this supernatural event from God that looks like a star. You know what they're seeing? It's about maybe this star. You know what they saw? Whatever it was, when it got to Jesus, it rested. When it got to Jesus, it stopped. It said no words, but the actions of creation made clear. Here he is. Here he is. And the way Matthew writes it, it's almost as though the star stops and worships its creator. That's why when it says the Magi, they saw the star, and then they worshiped with exceeding joy. I mean, if the stars of the heaven stop in their place, To worship this child? What else can I do? 
but bow my knee before him and worship. If creation worships, man, so should we. Every expectation about Jesus is fulfilled. Not just that of the Old Testament, but all the expectations of all the natural world are fulfilled as well. Here is the king of the world whom all creation has been waiting. Listen, the leaders, they're the ones that knew the promises. They had no faith. These guys, they didn't know anything. They, they discovered the promises when it, was writ, when it was read to them, but you see they are marked by faith. They are drawn to Christ they fall on their knees and worship, and they can do nothing else but to just do nothing else but to think to give them the finest things they have. The gold and the frankincense and the myrrh. And I think they're giving to Jesus far more than they even know what they're giving to him. You know, traditionally the church has said gold is the gift you would give for a king. And here they present this gold, this precious gold to a king wearing baby clothes, you know? I mean, like baby gap. That's what he's got on. And they give him what they have of the most value. And the frankincense, that's what priests used in the temple. Priests were those that mediated the relationship between God and man. And it's almost as though the Scripture is saying, here, you're the great high priest. You're the priest of all priests. You're the one to mediate between God and man. Here's the frankincense. Here's all we have of it. May the aroma be pleasing to God. And the myrrh, I tell you. You know what myrrh was used for? In that day, it was used to embalm the dead. The man born to be king was the man born to die. And here, while it is valuable, I think it is far more significant than they could have ever imagined. Oh, he came to rule. He will rule as king. He will shepherd his people. But he will go to the cross and he will die for them. And that's how he's going to save you and save me. So they're warned in a dream not to go back to Herod. They depart by another way. That's what happens when you see Jesus, when you worship him. Your journey changes. Um, so why does Matthew include this story? Well, I think, one, he's trying to show us what Christmas says about those things in our life that we count as wisdom or we count as treasures or we count as the keys to life. These were the, um, the intellectual elite. These were the ones who were knowledgeable. These were the ones who were experts. These were the ones that dealt in things of mystery. And while the Bible is in no way condoning that we would go back to astrology, it is saying, you know what? God met these men where they were in their idolatry, and he brought them to his word. 
And through his word, he brings them to his son. You know, in many ways, it's this commentary on 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Where's the wise of the age? Who, who is it that's the scholars? Where, where's the philosophers? It's the foolishness of heaven that's wiser than the wisdom of the world. And God is pleased to save any man, any woman coming to him through the foolishness of the gospel. Listen, the star, their wisdom, it was sufficient to start the journey, but they needed the truth of Scripture to bring them all the way. Listen, this morning, I, there's a lot of ideas out there. And I will tell you, no one comes to the Father. No one comes to the God that created them. No, no one comes to the place of their heart's deepest longing apart from the Son. We find out in Romans, Paul says, no one comes to the Son apart from the gospel apart from the revealed Word of God, you won't get there. God in His grace will meet you where you are. He will lead you to His Word in leading you to His Son. All your learning, all your science, all your wisdom, all your whatever can only tell you the need that you have for a creator, but it cannot solve the problem. You must come to the Word of God, the proclamation of the Son of God, to be saved. You know, it's interesting. There's a guy, I'll close with this, Chrysostom, 375 A.D. It's an old guy, all right? Well, he's old now. 375, they lived between about 340 and 410 A.D. Um, he was the great preacher of the early church. He was called Golden Mouth. How about that for you, right? Golden Mouth. He, um, he preached like nobody else in his day, and evidently nobody else since. He was, um, at a time later, at the end of his life, he was exiled Later, he was executed. He died a martyr. His last words just before he died were, Glory be to God for all things. Presumably, the context was even death. Glory be to God. At his funeral, the bishop of Constantinople said, so Chrysostom's first name was John, John Chrysostom. And the bishop of Constantinople at his funeral, his memorial, said, Oh, John, your life was filled with sorrow, but your death was glorious. Your grave is blessed and reward is great by the grace and mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, graced one, you've conquered the bounds of time and place. Bask in grace. Forever. Isn't that beautiful? It's beautiful. Well, the golden mouth preached this passage. 
And I want to close with how he closed. Listen to Chrysostom as he finishes his preaching on Matthew 2. The invisible and eternal nature did not hesitate to take on the weakness of the flesh on our behalf. The Son of God, who is God of the universe, is born a human being in the flesh. He permits himself to be placed in a manger, and the heavens are within the manger. He's kept in a cradle, but it is a cradle that cannot hold the world. He is heard in the voice of a crying infant. This is the same one for whose voice the whole world would tremble in the hour of his passion. Thus he is the one. The glory of God, the Lord of majesty, whom as a tiny infant the magi recognize. It is he who while a child was truly God and King eternal. It is to him, Isaiah pointed. For unto us a child is born, to, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And then 1,700 years ago, he asked his congregation, do you believe? Has God been drawing you to his word so that by faith you would know his son? If so, do you believe? What is the response you have to the one who has come into the world? What's the response you have to God made flesh dwelling among us? taking on the sorrows and the burdens and the sin of mankind, yours and mine. As Winfred said this morning, to die the death you deserve, having lived the life you could never live, so you could become all that he is. If you would, would you bow with me and let's pray. Father, I thank you for this passage.